0: 21, Acts chapter 2 and verse 21, we're going to have the scripture on the screen if you don't have your Bible with you, but sometimes it's nice just to look along anyway in your, your own Bible. So Acts 2 and 21, Acts 2 and 21, but everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. People of Israel, listen, God publicly endorsed Jesus, the Nazarene, by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know. But God knew what would happen, and his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to the cross and killed him. But God raised him, released him, sorry, from the horrors of death and raised him back to life for death could not keep him in its grip. Death could not keep him in its grip. Thank you, Jesus. You may be seated this morning. I want to preach to you on the burial and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Many people look at the crucifixion as a tragic turn of events. Many people would would regard the life of Christ as, you know, a, a man who went about saying good things and doing good things, but in the end he was betrayed and he was taken advantage of. And he was killed, murdered by a vicious empire and a, a corrupt Jewish government. And, and uh, they would look at this event of the crucifixion as a tragedy, something that should not have taken place. In fact, there was a council that was held you know, within the last century, of of lawmakers that reviewed the case of Jesus Christ officially reviewed it and came to discover that Jesus was in fact not guilty of any of the charges that were laid against him and so the the way even that the Jews held the trial they they did it at nighttime which was not a standard practice they they did not abide by the laws of two or three witnesses which was a standard Jewish practice for for determining someone's guilt or innocence and all of these things that were went about uh, uh, surrounding the trial and the murder or the, the crucifixion of Christ was considered to be unjust and wrong and wrongfully carried out. But I, I want you to know that the Bible does not teach us this morning that Jesus was murdered. He was not a victim of a vicious or bloodthirsty empire that was corrupted even its, to its very core. Jesus is not a martyr of some religious or righteous cause. He was not a peaceful or wise, passive priest that irritated the wrong people and got himself killed in the the end. He was not outsmarted by Satan or any one of Satan's demonic forces. He was not outmaneuvered by the Romans, nor even really the victim of a betrayal from his loyal friends. In fact, the Bible teaches us that Jesus's life was intentionally laid down. If you read carefully the the the, uh, the accounts of the Gospels, you'll discover, as you you comb through it slowly and with the fine tooth comb, that while on the surface it appears as though Jesus was in fact murdered, that he was he was killed by a vicious empire and a corrupted Jewish government, and he was he was preaching was doing wise and good things, that, that his death did seem to be somewhat of a, a tragedy or a, an, an, unfor, an unfortunate turn of events, that that the Gospels and the Scriptures teach that Jesus did not become a victim of circumstance, but he himself laid down his life. Think about it logically, if you will. Jesus told his disciples multiple times in a few days i'm going to be killed in a few days i'm going to be turned over to my enemies and they're going to they're going to kill me jesus at his last supper knew who the one that would betray him was because he said to his the 12 there he said one of you is going to betray me tonight and they all looked at each other oh who is it me is it me is it me and jesus said the one who dips in the sop with me he is the one that will betray me and then Jesus passed that that bowl of gravy to Judas and Judas dipped in the bowl. Jesus knew who his betrayer was. So if you think think about it logically, right? If Jesus's intentions were to stay alive and not to die, not to be killed viciously by a by a, a corrupt government or by a, a a bloodthirsty empire, then then Jesus would not have gone to the garden of Gethsemane where he often went to pray. See Jesus went even though he knew who his betrayer was, he went to a known place. If Jesus was really trying to, you know, stay under the radar, he would have gone to a secretive place, a place that not only not not even his closest disciples would know about because after all he knew which one of them was going to betray him. When Jesus went to the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was unarmed himself and and he even told his disciples lay down your weapons don't don't pick up the sword he who lives by the sword is going to die by the sword these are the words of Christ he was unarmed while he prayed and Jesus set up no guards no sentries to watch and see when the when, when you know they would see the torches coming in the distance if if Jesus really had all intentions of staying alive and not dying and and remaining in his ministry which is you know, something that maybe someone doing a good cause would do, then Jesus would have set up watchers to say, you know what, guys, tonight's the night they're going to try to take me, but we're going to outsmart them. You just you do a bunch of rounds. You sleep for a bit, and you stay up and watch. And when you see the lights coming, we'll just dart out the back of the garden, and we'll disappear into the hills. They'll never find us. When Peter cut off the, the ear of one of the temple guards, Jesus didn't cheer him on and say, yeah, Peter, go. Uh, slay them all, get rid of them let's let's get out of here, let's create a distraction no, Jesus picked up the ear off the ground and put it back on the man's head and healed him miraculously Jesus did not resist arrest when he was taken before his accusers Jesus did not offer a counter or a testimony to, to diffuse the arguments that were being put against him Jesus did not solicit the aid of angels in his attempt. Jesus even told his disciples, he says, put down your weapons. Don't you know that I could call on 12 legions of angels, more than 12 legions of angels, if I wanted to. If I really wanted to get out of this, man, I, I could do it. By the way, 12 legions of angels is about 72,000. Jesus said, I could literally call 72,000 angels like that, and I- I'd, be- I'd be good. I'd didn't resist when he was being beaten or whipped. He didn't speak up and say, hey, wait a minute, you, you're whipping the wrong guy. You, you've got the wrong dude. Barabbas is the actual criminal. He's the, he's the one that you need to be whipping. He's the one that you, you know, they, they've called for Barabbas, but he's the real murderer. I, I haven't done any of these things you've accused me of. Even while he was on the cross. The only speeches he gave on the cross, which is is very unique, very very strange, if you consider a, a, a criminal who's dying by crucifixion is undergoing the worst kind of agony a human being could undergo. In fact, the, the 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 scientists and the the historians say that crucifixion is to this date still the worst way to die. It's the longest, slowest, most painful way someone could die, and so often. Cursing, cursing the, the gods that allowed them to be captured, cursing the people that were responsible for their capture, maybe even vowing to haunt them in the afterlife. Or You know, c- criminals would be known to be uh, just tearing people, uh, uh, you know, declaring their innocence, innocence. and not all these. The only things that Jesus said on the cross said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus was not lamenting his own personal suffering. And I know it seems strange, but Jesus was actually quoting one of the Psalms, the Psalms that were prophetic in nature, the Psalms that spoke of the Messiah. What was Jesus doing when Jesus said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus really wasn't calling to God and saying, you've forsaken me here. He was feeling, strain in the weight of sin. But what Jesus was actually doing was he was he was trying to signal to the Jews standing nearby, guess what? The Psalms predicted what you see here. Because if you read that particular Psalm, you'll read about how the Messiah was to be pierced in his hands and his feet. And that his enemies stood around him and cast lots from And so Jesus is calling attention to all Jews around. Hey, guys, prophecy is being fulfilled before your very eyes. I am the Messiah. When Jesus was on the cross, he prayed for the forgiveness of those who were there, claiming that they did not really understand what they were doing. That, my God, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He prayed for their forgiveness. He took care of his mother while he was on the cross. He looked at her and he looked at his closest disciple, John, and he said, John, behold your mother, and mother, behold your son. He took care of his affairs concerning others while he was on the cross. All of this does not speak of someone who was betrayed, who was martyred, or who was taken advantage of. In fact, Jesus, even at the end, the Bible says that he breathed his last and he yielded up his spirit at one point he cried out and uh, and he just said it is finished and the bible says he gave up his spirit john chapter 10 verse 18 jesus before his crucifixion spoke to his disciples and he said no man taketh it from me but i lay it down myself the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again, this commandment I have received from my Father. The New Testament teaches us that Jesus became obedient unto death. What does this tell us? This tells us that Jesus' death was an intentional act. It was not a mistake. It was not a hangman's trial. It was not a martyrdom, although those elements were part of it. There was a greater plan at work. Jesus' death was not by accident. It was not by happenstance. It was not a circumstance of unfortunate events, but it was an intentional, carefully laid out plan that Jesus was literally the perfect Lamb of God that was laid down for the sins of the world. In the scripture we read at the beginning here this morning, Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost to that same group of people that cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And Peter said to them, God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him as you well know. But God knew what would happen. And his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. God prearranged. For Jesus, uh, the the sinless, spotless lamb uh, to be crucified. God allowed the wickedness uh, and the evil of men to be wholly bent uh, on his suffering servant, on his own body. And God allowed him to go through these things in a carefully planned uh, out way, even to the point of crucifixion. It was not a mistake. It was intentional. His death was intentional. His crucifixion was intentional. His suffering was intentional. And you have to ask, why would God go to such great lengths uh, to allow himself to be crucified? Why would he go to such great lengths uh, to be formed of a woman and made into the likeness of sinful flesh? Why would he go to such great extents to be, to be crucified on a cross? What was his intent? What was he trying to accomplish? Told his disciples in John chapter fourteen, he began to preach to them about his intentions. He was trying to tell them what his intentions were. See, God's desire has always been to live with His people. In the garden of in the garden of Eden, in the very beginning, the Bible talks about how man, Adam and Eve, walked with God in the cool of the day. In the evenings, God would walk with His people. His spirit would would fellowship with Adam and Eve in the garden and sin broke that connection. It, it destroyed that ability to fellowship with God. It destroyed it. It it tore it apart. And so God created a, a series of things to help facilitate that 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 presence staying with his people. He he set up something called the tabernacle. This is many Thousands of years later, a man by the name of Moses, who was leading the nation of Israel, and God said, Moses, I want you to build me a tent. Build me a tent that I can live among my people. This will be my tent. It will be a special tent. We'll call it a tabernacle or a house. This will be my house. And, and this is how I want you to build it. And he gave him all these instructions. You know, use this kind of linen, use this kind of gold, use this kind of silver, use this kind of bronze, and, and build it this way and use this kind of garment on the inside and on the outside. And, and, and by the way, Moses, only certain people can go in. And, and when you come in, you've got to bring an animal. And it's got to be sacrificed. And there was a lot of, there was a lot of instructions around God's house, but it was still God's house. And if you looked at the map, you would see that Israel stationed all of their tents around the tabernacle in the Old Testament. The tabernacle was in the center of the camp, and all of the tent doors faced the tabernacle. Why? God wanted to be in the middle of his people. He wanted to live among his people. And so many thousands of years pass by, and Israel finally gets big enough that they can build a permanent house. David writes the plans for it. Solomon builds the temple, and it was known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the the temple of Solomon, overlaid with gold and beautiful in in its entirety. It was massive. It was glorious. It was cut from limestone and beautifully arranged. And it was the house of God, the presence of God. us that God does not want to live in temples of stone or wood. God doesn't want to even be housed in a church building. We sometimes call we call church buildings the house of God, but that's not entirely accurate. Because God says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. This whole planet is where God rests his feet. great mountains of this world. Think of the great countries, the vast oceans that have not yet been explored to their depths. And that's all God's footstool. How could we say that we're going to build a building like a church edifice and it's going to house the presence of God? It's not possible. And so God said, wait a minute, I'm not going to live in houses, but I want to live in the hearts of men. And so the Bible says that the word became flesh, John chapter 1, And tabernacled among us. God's presence now left the tent. It left the garden. It left the tent. And it left the temple. And now it was in the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is the visible image of the only God. He is the visible image of God. If God took a selfie, you would see Jesus' picture. Because Jesus is God's image. He is what God looks like. He is what God sounds like. He is what God thinks like. He is what God acts like. Jesus is the visible representation of the eternal, all-knowing, all-powerful God. And God allowed his image to be crucified on a cross. What for? Why so intentional in this horrific death? What was so intentional? Why was he so intentional about this? John 14, verse 1, Jesus said to his disciples, let not your heart be troubled. If you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go. I'm leaving you to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And we have read this verse of scripture, the church in North America anyway has read this verse of scripture and go, woohoo! when I get to heaven, I'm going to live in. Jesus said, he's going to make a mansion for me. And if it took him seven days, to, I've heard it all. Uh, it took him seven days to build the earth, but it's taken him 2,000 years to build my mansion. What a glorious mansion that's going to be. I can't wait to get over to the other side. Streets of gold. I mean, I'm going to be living in style. I live in a one-bedroom apartment today, but man, one of these days I'm going to be in that mansion in the sky. Right? I've heard all of these things that people get excited about going to heaven. And living in their mansion that Jesus built for them. But this is not what Jesus is talking about. I mean, if you if you think about it, it doesn't even make sense. In my father's house are many mansions. That doesn't make sense. A house is smaller than a mansion. So how could the house be so big that there's many mansions? That 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 linguistic there's a lot of you know hurdles I have to jump over that and then So Jesus is not talking about how he's going to build me a mansion in heaven. And and on top of that, when Jesus was on the earth, he even said, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, Jesus says, I'm not putting a lot of stock in houses or land. I'm not putting a lot of investment in the market. I'm not putting a lot of investment in real estate because this world is temporary. And and by the way, your material home doesn't really mean all that much in the end. It's important. It serves a purpose, but it's just a nest. It's just a hole. At the end of the day, it's going to be, you know, a nest is going to fall out of the tree and the hole is going to collapse and another animal is going to take its place. it's, It's not eternal. It does not have eternal value. So if that was Jesus' Mindset on the earth. Why would he then go to heaven and build me the nest or the hole in the ground? That doesn't make sense. So, so the context of this scripture is not even talking about heaven. Uh, we've read this wrong, in my opinion, and in my study, I've come to find out that that Jesus wasn't talking about heaven at all in this passage. I go to prepare a place for you. He wasn't talking about how when he died, he was going to ascend into heaven and begin to build. Heaven for us someday, that where he is, we may be also. No, no. Jesus was talking about the day of Pentecost, because if you look at the original language, what a better translation is: "In my Father's house are many rooms, and I've gone to prepare your place in my Father's house." Another way to look at it like this is: "In my Father's family tree." Are many branches, and I've gone to prepare a branch of my family tree for you. I'm going to make it possible for you to enter the family tree of God. I'm making it possible for you to enter into the family of God, for God to be your father, and for you to be his son or his daughter. I'm going to prepare a place, a way for you to get into the family of God. John chapter 14, verse 3, he said, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. I will come again, so Jesus is declaring, hey, I'm going to leave you for a while, but I'll and allow you to become part of God's dwelling place. What was he all about in the garden of Eden? He was all about dwelling with Adam and Eve. What was he all about in the tabernacle of Moses? He was all about dwelling in the middle of the camp of his people. What was he all about in the temple of Solomon? That his presence would rest over the nation and his name would be etched on the stones of Israel forever. What was he all about when he would was born of a virgin in the womb and, and, and became flesh and dwelt among us. He was all about dwelling among his people. What was he all about when the, the disciples were filled with the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost and their sins were washed away in the waters of baptism? He was all about dwelling in the house of his people. This idea that Jesus went to go build a mansion and we lose sight of the fact that Jesus actually wants to live in the, in the, in the space of your heart today. The reason for being filled with the Holy Ghost is not to stamp your one-way ticket to heaven to make sure you get a spot in the mansion over yonder. But the reason for filling your heart today is because on this earth, Jesus said, you're going to have trouble. You're going to have difficulty. You're going to have trouble and trial and pain. And and just because you're a a believer in me does not uh, exempt you from having to struggle or suffer or go through pain or suffering. So in order to help you through this season of life uh, I want to put my spirit inside of you. I want to give you my my covering of my blood, my protection, and I'm going to be with you through the trouble. What did he say? He said, He said, let not your heart be troubled. Don't be troubled by this world. If you believe in God believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms and i've gone to prepare a way for you to get in to those rooms. Then Jesus said in verse 4, at the end of this speech he said, "And you know where i am going." What pause? Er, hold on. What? Jesus said, "You know where i'm going?" And his disciples looked at each other and said, "Jesus, this speech, Jesus kept telling them, hey guys, we're getting close to that day when when my enemies are going to come and they're going to take me away and they're going to crucify me. They're going to kill me. He even said to them things like, hey guys, you should take up your cross and follow me if you're going to be my disciple. He kept giving them clues and hints. He kept telling them, hey, uh, one of these days I'm going to leave you by way of death. And so at the end of it all, This is at the Last Supper. Jesus tells his disciples, you know where I'm going. I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'm going by way of death. I'm going by way of crucifixion. It's pre-planned. Uh, it's pre-arranged. Uh, don't worry about it. Don't let your heart be troubled by it because this death, while it's on the outside, it's going to look like a martyrdom. It's going to look like a hangman trial. It's going to look like like the devil won uh, and, and, and the world has has been victorious. But I just want you to know it was all pre-arranged so that I could take the brunt of the suffering of sin for you so that I could prepare the way for you to get into my family tree. See your first step away of trouble. Your first step to, to walking away from being troubled uh, and being tormented and, and being uh, overrun by sin uh, is getting close to the Father. It's getting close to Jesus. Your first step is to acknowledge, hey, I am away from God. Uh, hey, I, I do make mistakes, and I, I make sin, and I I make the wrong choice from here and there, and that separates me from God. But I need to come back to the heart of Jesus. I need to turn my heart back to him and say, Lord, I'm sorry for the things that I've Dead. I'm sorry Lord for the things that I've done the sins that I've committed have only separated me from you and from our ability to have a fellowship and a relationship and I, I want to make that right and so your first step is to is to come to Jesus and say hey I, I want to come into your family tree it's called repenting asking God to forgive you of your sins Peter told the disciples and the, the listeners on the day of Pentecost he says, you crucified the Lord of glory. You've crucified the Messiah. But God sought to it that he did not stay dead, but he rose from the dead on the third day. And they, they were pricked in their heart. The Bible says that they were pricked in their heart, and they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said, here's how you get into God's family tree. Repent. That means asking God to forgive you. That means turning your heart away from sinful practices and and turning your life over to Jesus. And then he said, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. Why baptized? Well, Colossians chapter 2 teaches us that, that we have to die out to our sin by repenting. And verse 12 says, you are buried with Christ. When you're baptized. So you literally go through the same process that Jesus went through. You die in repentance like he died on the cross. You get buried in the waters of baptism. The word baptized means to be fully immersed. Some, some churches teach that it's okay just to sprinkle a little bit. But that's not the real meaning of the word baptized. To, to baptize something is to dip it. The word baptized literally comes from the term they would use when they would dye clothes. They would take a white linen garment and they would dip it into a bucket of dye and they would pull it out and the cloth would be different than when it went in the water. It's the same way when you're baptized. When you go into the water, you go all the way under. You don't half dip a cloth in dye or just sprinkle it with dye unless you're doing tie dye, right? And so that's that's not what this was all about. It's all about immersion, going all the way in. Because when you bury somebody, you don't just sprinkle dirt on them either. You bury them six feet under. You put them in a tomb. You, you cremate them. You, you do something to take care of their remains. And so you're buried with Christ. The whole man or woman goes under the water. Just like the garment would go into the bucket of dye. of your past are left in the watery grave. The Bible says that when you're baptized, you're raised to new life. There's something that transpires in the water. By the way, this is town of Ajax water, and it's chlorinated with stuff from colonial pools down the street. There's nothing magical in this water, no fairy dust, no no special blessing prayed over the water. It's, It's just regular water. But what's special about the water, it's you going under in Jesus' name. Because it's in Jesus' name that the blood is applied to your life. You call on the name of the Lord, the Bible says, and you will be saved. You're calling on Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the one who died on the cross. You're calling on Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the one who rose from the dead. You're calling on Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the one who fills you with his spirit when you receive the Holy Ghost. Uh, It's Jesus' name because it's Jesus' blood. It's Jesus' crucifixion. and It was Jesus who rose from the dead. So you call on him and you will be saved buried with him when you're baptized. And you're raised to new life when you trust the mighty power of God. Peter said to the, the the people on the day of Pentecost, when you're baptized in Jesus' name, it's for the remission of your sins. The word remission means the washing away, the forgiveness of When you go under the waters of baptism, there is a a spiritual supernatural washing that comes over your record, and it's wiped clean to the point, to the extent that when God looks at you, he no longer sees the stain of your sin, he no longer sees the, the mistakes you made yesterday, but he sees someone who is completely right and perfect in his own eyes. It's amazing. The Bible says it's like Jesus puts on a new pair of clothes over you. He covers you, and he covers all of the mistakes in his own righteousness. Isn't that amazing? That when God looks at you after you've been baptized, he doesn't even see the mistakes of yesterday. He doesn't see the mistakes of yesterday at all. He doesn't see the mistakes of ten years ago. or or 40 years ago, no matter how old you are, he doesn't see any of it. It's completely covered. Completely covered. It's buried. It's buried. No, No really sane person goes grave digging. God doesn't go grave digging. He doesn't go digging up your mistakes from yesterday. He leaves them buried in the water. life. Clive and Pat are going to be baptized this morning in Jesus' name. And when they come out of the water, all the mistakes of however many years that they've been making mistakes are going to be left in that watery grave. Nothing's going to remain. Nothing's going to stick. It doesn't matter how terrible, how awful, how, how, how horrible it was. It's going to stay buried in the name of Jesus. Uh, what a wonderful thing this morning. And so when we, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper, if you guys want to get that ready, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper here in just a moment. Because for the rest of us that have already been baptized, you've already experienced that. You've come to that that place of faith in Christ. When you partake of that that Lord's communion, the Supper that we're going to partake of here in a moment, you're reminded, hey, my sins are buried. In the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, I'm covered by the blood. I'm, I, I'm cleansed. Jesus said come to the table. Just come everybody to the table. And, and And I want you to partake of my body. I want you to partake of the cup. Uh, because it's a reminder. Do it to remember me. Remember what I did. Uh, remember the sacrifice that I made for your sins. He's prepared a place for us this morning. He's prepared a table for us this morning, and we're going to partake of that at this time. And so, um, yeah, go ahead. We're going to partake of this this morning because this is what the Lord has done for us. So what we're going to do here just for a moment, we're going to come up, and you can come and grab a cracker. Uh, There's enough crackers in a packet for a family, so just one packet per family. And you take a, a cup. So just. One at a time, maybe just uh, one family at a time, come up and, and collect your, your cracker, Sister Bryson, if you want to just play something for us while, while we do this. We're going to partake of the Lord's Supper this morning, so don't be shy. If you want to come and partake of the Lord's Supper, you can come.